Hi, my name is Edith. My husband and I recently moved to Smithers about 16 months ago, and we started attending online services for Gateway, and in last spring we started attending in person, and we're excited to say that we call Gateway Church now our church home, and I've recently taken on the position of a care team ministry leader, and I look forward to seeing some of our people and talking with you and getting to know you. Our scripture reading this morning is Revelation 1, 1 to 6. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the rulers of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Edith. He was probably very young when Jesus pulled off Easter and then 40 days later ascended into heaven. Imagine being alive during this time, witnessing miraculous signs and wonders in the name of Jesus, and the church being born, and watching the early church be devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread and the prayers, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and many people coming to faith daily, people being saved in the name of Jesus. But then 30 years later, the emperor Nero came to power, and one day he burned Rome, and more than 70% of Rome turned to dust and to ash, and after six days of ceaseless fires, he stands up before all of Rome, and he declares that Christians started the fire, and they suddenly become public enemy number one. And on that day, everything changed for him, for his family, for his friends, and for everyone that he knew who loved Jesus. Within 365 days, only months after this declaration, many of the super apostles that you think of, many of the authors of your New Testament are put to death. Peter, Paul, Timothy are all publicly lynched and murdered within that year. Not to mention his own friends, his own family members who are publicly executed. 
Many years later, Nero dies, and there is a short season in which Christians are once again hopeful that maybe, just maybe, now is the time that they can re-enter into Rome. They can reintegrate, they can go back into the economy, back into civil life, back into politics, and no more persecution. Maybe now is the time, now that Nero is gone. But shortly thereafter, a new ruler comes to power by the name of Domitian, and he is even worse than the first. And once again, all Christians are filled with dread. Domitian demands of Christians that they say, Kaiser Curios, which means Caesar is Lord. But Christians know that there's only one Lord of the universe, and so they publicly declare Christos Curios, which means Jesus Christ is Lord. And once again, they become public enemies, number one. And the lynchings continue, the murders continue, and the blood of the martyrs fills the streets. Some of the most common forms of execution, they would take ropes and tie them around the limbs of Christians and around horses, and then slap them in every which way until their limbs are torn from their bodies. Or they would drill holes in their skulls and put molten lead inside until they die. Or they would put them on spikes while they're still alive and then fill them with thatch and debris. And while they're still alive, burn them on fire during evening parties. Or they would simply throw them to the lions. How merciful given the four options. And Christians are afraid for their lives. To be a Christian during this time is to live a life of social isolation, a life of poverty, and a life of fear. Kind of like lepers, but worse, because at least lepers were pitied, but Christians were hated. And here's John. And he realizes that it is a very difficult time for the church. And eventually the author of this book, John, he's captured, he's flogged, he's beaten, but this time the Romans feel like they have Christians figured out. They are amazed that every single time they execute a Christian, every single time they persecute a Christian, they take it on sometimes with hope, with valor, with joy, and they're amazed by it. And they're trying to figure it out. Like, how can you face death with such incomprehensible joy? They want to know more about this Jesus. But they make a decision. They say, you know, we're, we're not going to put John to death. Instead, we are going to put him on a deserted island in Patmos to live out his days. Because every time we kill a Christian, we martyr that Christian. And the church grows. So maybe what we have to do is just prolong the suffering for them to live out their days in suffering. Maybe that will cause Christians to bend and to break. But even this method will prove to be unsuccessful. And as scripture says, what they intended for evil, God intended for good. Because throwing John on Patmos becomes the very means by which God sends visions to John and he writes them down not only for the benefit of the original listeners, but for you and me too. And the very Bible we hold in our hands. 
And the book of Revelation that you hold is precisely because these events transpired the way that they did. Incredible. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to grab them and find the book of Revelation. The very last book in your Bible, Revelation chapter 1. Get your smartphone or your Bible and turn there with me. We're in a brand new series on this book, and I'm, I'm really excited to dive into it with you. I've preached topically on the book of Revelation, but I've never preached through it, so this is something that's new for me as well. So be praying for me that I would be able to provide clarity and that God would use me to communicate his principles and his precepts for God's people as well. And perhaps you're a little bit curious as to why we're doing a series on the book of Revelation. I just want to tell you on the front end that I've been planning on this series for a little over a year. And so there's nothing in the media, there's nothing in the news where I'm saying, oh my goodness, look at what's happening out there. That's a sign of the end times. We need this book right now because we've needed this book for over 2,000 years. And so there's nothing that's going on in our culture or our context that's motivating me to read this book. In fact, here's what I want to propose to you. What I think that this book does really well, perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, is this. It comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear, that's what this book can do for us. And, and so, as I'm looking around the room, I know we've experienced a lot over the last two years. For some of us, we're spiritually, emotionally, relationally weary. And so what we need to be reminded of is that there's hope for you in Scripture, that God ultimately does win, He does prevail, and so that we can hold fast to the promises of God, even in the midst of our challenges. But at exactly the same time, perhaps for some of us, we've grown apathetic, apathetic inattentive, or bored. And what the gospel is communicating through this word is to, to draw you to something deeper, to, to something more beautiful, more magnificent than what it is that you are currently experiencing. And so God is calling you back to himself to obey his word and to follow him in obedience and love. And so that's what this book does if we let it. And so I, I want to invite you to come with me. You know, as your pastor, my prayer is that Gateway would be a place that is biblically serious. That we not only know the Word of God, but that we love the Word of God. That we constantly read the Word of God. And when we're cut, we bleed the Word of God. That we are fully devoted to what God says. Which is why I like to say when the Bible says jump, we say, how high, Lord? And that's what this does. So let me give you a taste or a flavor of what I think this would look like if we were fully obedient to God's word. It would mean that when we were sitting around the kitchen table with our kids, we're eager to disciple them. Because we know that there's a great battle that is waging beyond what our eyes can see in the spiritual realm. That is trying to captivate and capture your own kids. And so you want to defend them, you want to uproot them, you want to support them, you want to disciple them. And it means when you're hanging out with family or with friends around the dinner table, you are so grateful for God's provisions in your life. And you're constantly, publicly, and as a group, giving thanks to God for all that he has done. 
It means that when we're sick on our hospital beds, that we still give praise to God because we know he is good even in the midst of the trials that we face, even as we pray for recovery and for peace and for rest. And it means that we are going to be motivated with evangelistic zeal. I mean, what would it actually look like if we believed that God could save our neighbors? Not just in a spiritual sense, like, yeah, I believe hypothetically that it could happen, but that we believe that we were strategically located where we are for the sake of our family members, our friends, our coworkers, and neighbors within our orbit who don't know Jesus. That God, in his sovereignty, decided to put you exactly where you are. And that no one's ever safe because there you are, offering to pray for them. Offering to support them. Offering to encourage them. That we always believe that God has placed us where we are for such a time as this. For the sake of those who do not yet know the name of Jesus. So, I don't know about you. But I don't want to passively walk through life. I want to be a threat. I want, to, I want to infiltrate the gates of hell. I want God to use me in such a way that I am faithful to suffer well, to obey his word, and as we pray, our heavenly father, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, in our time, in our day, in my workplace, in my household, with my relationships, wherever I go, I want to be faithful, Lord. Use me. And that's what this book does. It calls us to something deeper than what we're currently experiencing. And my hope is, over the course of these 12 weeks, that you would come with me on this journey and that we would revive our spiritual imagination and we would see not just with our eyes but with our hearts what is happening in the unseen realm and that we would be quick to put on the armor of God. And that's what this book helps us do. So right off the bat, right off the front, I want to clarify some things about this book. I want to set a good foundation because you're probably going to hear me say this at least a couple times this morning. This book has been robbed from us from decades of bad teaching and from conspiracy theories. And so I think it's really important for us to take some time to kind of uproot some of the theories and assumptions that are tied to this book and we need to kind of throw them away and then lay out a new foundation for what the book is trying to do. So right off the gate, I put this in your note sheet, reclaiming the book of Revelation, here's something that I want you to have in your mind for the next three months and even long after that. Obedience is better than Revelation. Obedience is better than Revelation. Now, uh, there's a, a book that I've encouraged each of you to pick up if you like to read. It's called Reclaimed Thunder, written by Eugene Peterson. And he communicates this really well in the opening chapter. Let me read it to you. He says this. Everything in Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete revealed in Jesus Christ. There's nothing new to say on the subject, but there's a new way to say it. I read the revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. St. John uses words the ways poets do, recombing them in fresh ways so that old truth 
is freshly perceived. Now, isn't that radically different than how we often look at this book? We often see this book as like, okay, there's signs of the end times, and we're looking at the media, looking at the news, we say, oh my goodness, that's exactly what the book of Revelation says, that just before Jesus comes, these things are going to happen, and we can see it right here. And then conspiracy theories begin to emerge. But here's what this book is all about. This book is far more about a call to obedience, to obey the word of God, than it is some fresh new perspective on new theories or new insights or new prophecies that are being communicated about this book. New predictions, end times, visions, prophecies, all those things that we often think about. It's not that we need a new vision. Oftentimes we we think to ourselves like, man, I just need a, a fresh word from God. Well, here's a fresh word. Do what he says. That's what John is saying. Here's the fresh word. Do what he says. Do what scripture says. You've gotten 65 books up to this point, and it has not sunken in that ultimately what God wants for his people is to obey his word so that you can grow in discipleship and in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that's what this is all about. So, if you want a thesis statement, here's the way that I put it in our note sheet. Why was the book of Revelation written? Three things. To inspire obedience... In the midst of our suffering, by affirming one hope-filled reality. And what is that? God wins. In the end, God is victorious. The example that I've shared with you before is like watching your favorite sports game on a rerun. Right? Watching the Raptors uh, win like win the the championship or watching the bottom of the ninth and your team, they're behind by a couple and you're kind of fretting or you're worried. Well, you don't have to be because you know how the story ends. You're watching this on a replay and you know how the story ends and because of that, you can be as cool as a cucumber. Even when everything around you says life is going to hell in a handbasket, you can still say, I have the hope of Jesus Christ I know how it ends, and so I will obey in the midst of my suffering. And so this is what I want to do this morning. I want to outline for you six core principles as a foundation for what this book is and what this book is not. Here's the first one. Revelation is, number one, a call to action. And here's the message. Jesus is your life. Jesus is your life. Remember, John, he's talking to Christians here, and it might sound like he's uh, preaching to the choir, so to speak, but he's revealing something that's happening in the church, which is not unlike today. And I think Eugene Peterson is really helpful here. Again, there was a time in which he was writing a letter to his son by the name of Eric, and here's what he said about the state of the church in the United States. And I think this is very applicable in Canada, too, If anything, we're more post-Christian than the U.S. And so here's what he says about Christianity in America. He says, why am I so uncomfortable in this world? They're all on my side. He's talking about Christians. They're all courteous and affirmative. But it seems to be gospel without depth, without suffering, and without ambiguity. Everything smoothed out and ironed and with a lot of starch in the collar. 
So what is he saying? He's saying, even though we're religious, even though we're spiritual, we go to church, we read our Bibles, we pray, we, we do all these, these things that we're also spiritually thin and that we lack a wartime mentality. We, we lack a, a zeal for the mission of God. To not only know what the word of God says in our minds, that's orthodoxy, that's proper doctrine, but that we actually live it out, orthopraxy, in such a way that we see a movement, a gospel movement arise in our community, in our culture, within Christian circles. Because we are countercultural. We're not like the world. And the world sees that, and just like the Romans, they go, what's going on with these Christians? Why is it that even when we persecute them, even when we tear them down, they're filled with incomprehensible joy? What is it that they have? And they're drawn to the gospel. But he looks at it and he says, you know what? We have too much in common with the world. And there's not a whole lot of distinctives between a Christian and a non-Christian. So, gateway, my hope for us is if there are places in which we are spiritually thin, or we are not serious about Scripture. My hope is, whether that's in a macro sense with all of us as a a church, or in a micro sense with each of us as individuals, that we would be quick and gracious enough to, to drive it out, to pray it out, and to repent of the ways that we have usurped God of his glory. And that we would be quick to come back to the throne and say, God, here are the ways that I have failed once again. I I just want to be obedient to your word. Call me back to yourself. My hope and my prayer for us is that we would be biblically serious men and women of faith. And that the word of God would dwell richly in each and every one of us. So that's number one. First and foremost, revelation is a call to action. To recognize that Jesus cannot be supplemental in your life. It cannot be an add-on to your life. Jesus must be your life. And he will not share allegiances with your heart. He must be primary in your life. Number two, it is a letter. Which means, and I think this is critical, this is so important. The book of Revelation cannot mean for us today what it did not mean for them then. Did you hear what I just said? It cannot mean for us today what it did not mean for them then. So if you have your Bibles, look again at verse 4. Edith already read this for us. Let's have it fresh in our minds once more. It says this. John to who? To Gateway? To Abbotsford? To 21st century North American Christians? No. To the seven churches... In the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne. So, right off the bat, we have to see that this book has an intended audience to a particular people, at a particular place, at a particular time. And I think that's one of the reasons why we are very tempted to believe that this book is all about us. And I'll I'll even share with you a couple of the newest conspiracies that are tied to this book that you can find on the internet or even communicated in some churches. Maybe you've heard about the locusts in the book of Revelation being the Apache helicopter in the U.S. Or the dragon 
being, of course, the Chinese government. Or the mark of the beast being the COVID vaccine. Or the seven Trumps being the presidency of Donald Trump. We hear these kinds of stories and conspiracies. But we have to remember the principle that this book cannot mean for us today what it did not mean for them then. And I I don't mean to be rude or condescending if, if someone here has that view. But how myopic of a view do we have to have to say, nope. Seven churches in Asia, this book wasn't written for you. It was written for us 2,000 years later in North America, and suddenly the word of God has been activated with such incredible power and with such meaning. And then how terrible would it be if God had those intentions? He says, seven churches in Asia, I know you're suffering right now. I know you're under intense persecution. And this book actually isn't written to you. It's written to a bunch of Canadians, a bunch of people in North America 2,000 years from now. No. It was written to them. And another way of thinking about this, it was written to them, but it was, it was written for us. So that's the distinction that we have to have. We have to know all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. So in that sense, we can look at the book of Revelation and still understand some principles of what it has to say to us in our context. But by no means can we say that all of the things that are happening in our day and age are signs and prophecies and determinations of bringing this book alive to us today. It was a letter with an intended audience, and so the book was written for us, but not to us. That leads to point number three. The book of Revelation is a message, a message of encouragement and hope. And that's the great irony, I think, about this. When when you realize that the reason why this letter was written was to inspire obedience in the midst of suffering and to be reminded of the hope-filled reality that God wins and it was communicated to seven churches under intense persecution, you have to think, what does John think, even though he's in glory and, and he's, he's having a party right now, what does he have to think about the way that we often think about this book? Imagine if, just, just imagine with me, that you on your deathbed wrote a letter to your family And the intent of this letter was to encourage and motivate and offer hope to your family and friends who are suffering. And so you write down things like, be encouraged, family. I know you're suffering, but be faithful to suffer well and to obey God because Christ is on the way. We have a hope that God wins and in the end he will lead you to victory. So take hope, dear Christian. And then someone took your letter and they twisted it to create Fear and dread in the eyes and in the ears and in the hearts of the very people you intended to give hope to. So we have to see that this is a letter of hope and encouragement. Not a book of prophecies and predictions to create fear and dread in our hearts. To rob us of the hope that we have. And this is one of the reasons why when I was a teenager... And I discovered the Reformed faith. I fell in love with it. Because it gave me the perspective to see what this book is actually trying to communicate. Because when I was a kid, do you know what I did with my mom? I watched the Left Behind series. Anyone else watch those? 
I watched it like four times with my mom, going over and over and over and over and over again. Such fear, such dread. I remember sitting in the car with my dad. Um, I can't even remember the name of the song, but none of us know the hour, right? The sun has come and you've been left behind. I remember listening to that music and watching those shows and hearing those teachings and being filled with dread. And then when I came to the Reformed faith, I realized what it actually has to say. Two words, God wins. God wins. If you hear nothing else this morning, that's the principle of this book. Take heart, dear Christian. God wins. And because he wins, we can be encouraged and motivated to obey his word. Number four. The book of Revelation is a challenge, and it is a challenge to hold fast to your faith. To hold fast to your faith. So, as I've shared with you already, the book of Revelation is written to churches that are under intense persecution, right? And so, to be a Christian is essentially to commit to a life of poverty and social isolation. Imagine for a moment living in a culture like that where you can't engage in civil life, you can't take part in the local economy, you can't take part in politics, you can't be a a working professional like a doctor or a nurse or a politician, you can't be involved in any of those things. You are ostracized to the edge, to the fringes. And here's Rome, this incredible place to be, and I wonder if just for a moment they thought to themselves, wouldn't it be easier to assimilate? To enjoy the peace of Rome? The roads of Rome? The sensuality of Rome? The power of Rome? The security of Rome? And I don't know if this is a a helpful picture or not, but I think one way you could think about this is imagine if in World War II Germany, the Nazis didn't hate the ethnic Jews. All they hated was their practices. So here's Jews. They're in a death camp. And someone comes up to them and says, we don't hate the fact that you're Jews. We just hate the fact that you enjoy Passover and you wear yarmulkes and you try to convert people to believing that Yahweh is the Lord of all. And if you could just kind of tone those things down, then here's what you can do. You can walk right on out of here. You can go pick up your wife Over in her death camp, you can pick up your two kids whom you haven't seen for two months. You can pick them up and you can go back out. And you can live in Germany. You can go back to your job as a doctor or as a politician, as a farmer, as a teacher, as a pastor. You can enjoy your life. You can even continue to say, Yahweh is Lord of all. But you must also say Hitler is Lord. That's it. All you have to do is to assimilate into our culture, accept our cultural values, and you can do whatever you want. Because again, remember, Rome was a polytheistic culture, meaning they had plenty of gods. Every weekend, you could go to the temple, you could go to the brothel, you could go to the synagogue, you could go to a local home church, you could do whatever you wanted, they didn't care. But what irked the Romans is that Christians would say, Jesus is Lord. Oh, and they refused to say, Caesar is Lord. They refused to bend the knee to say that Caesar is divine. And that's what caused Rome to hate them. And maybe, just maybe, they had this thought, maybe I can have my cake and eat it too. I can worship Jesus on the weekends. 
I can go to Bible studies on Wednesday night. But if I assimilate and get cozy with the culture and do what they do, I don't have to face persecution. I don't have to live in social isolation and poverty. And I don't have to live in constant fear that I or my spouse or my kids are going to be dragged out on the street and put to death. Don't tell me you're not thinking about that. So just to give a bit of a flavor as to why, when we get to uh, the seven churches next week, why they're not doing so great. Because it must have been so incredibly tempting for them to just think to themselves, we just need to ease up. Now look at us today. I think if there is one cultural idol in Canada, it's acceptance, isn't it? Isn't that the great God of our time? It's just a much, much tamer, of Rome, a tamer version of Rome. So in the same way, what, what we hear all the time, what's indoctrinated to us, the, the fishbowl that we live in, is sure you can be a Christian. Sure you can follow Jesus. Just don't bring it into the public sphere. Don't bring it to work. Don't bring it to politics. Don't bring it into medicine. Leave that at home. Privatize your faith. It's the same thing, just in a very, very different context. The great God of our age is a full-blown privatization of faith. And that's all they had to do to be accepted, and they wouldn't. They wouldn't. And so I think we have something to learn from the first century Christian brothers and sisters that we have. That's number four. Number five, revelation is a prophecy. And by prophecy, it simply means this. It is a window into a divine reality. See, when we think of the word prophecy, we often think crystal balls, don't we? Someone giving predictions about whether or not you're going to have a boy or a girl, um, or predictions of the future, or what's going to happen to your life. But in Scripture, here's what the Bible is talking about. Every single time you hear the word prophecy in Scripture, it is almost always accompanied by the phrase, Thus saith the Lord. It is a declaration of God's will for your life through his word. That's what prophecy is. And that just brings us all the way back to the first point, that obedience is better than revelation. Prophecy is ultimately a communication from God about what his will is for your life. What he wants for you to do. So as you read through the book of Revelation for the next three months, I encourage you to take note of every single time John says either, I see or I hear or I've seen, or I've heard. It occurs more than 50 times in the book of Revelation, and what that means is a window is about to be open, opened to help you see more clearly a biblical truth you already know. Do you see the way that I just said that? Not a new truth, not a, a new profound mystery being revealed, but it's something that you already know about Scripture's script that's going to be communicated in a new and fresh way to help you understand more deeply the truth of the gospel. That's what this book can do if you let it. Number six, the book of Revelation is an apocalypse. And by apocalypse, we mean an unveiling of the truth. An unveiling of the truth. The word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis, which means precisely that, unveiling of the truth. But when we think of the word apocalypse, what do we think? Signs of the end times. 
right? Great catastrophes are going to befall us. The human race is going to come to an end. A great apocalypse is going to occur. But really, apocalypsis simply means to unveil the truth, to deliver the truth, to communicate the truth. And I, I think for us Westerners, this is one of the reasons why uh, the book of Revelation is so difficult for us to understand. Because in the West, there's two things we like about stories. We want to have the literal facts, so we want to understand something literally, and we like to understand things linearly. They have to show up in sequence. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. That's how we read things. And the book of Revelation just doesn't listen to those rules. Here's what we find in the book of Revelation. We find out that uh, people are often depicted as animals. Historical events are presented as natural catastrophes like earthquakes or floods. We see that colors and numbers have incredible meaning. And stories are not in chronological order. They're not in chronological order. So all these things are trying to infuse our imaginations, to revive our imaginations, but what we want to hear is this, then this, then this, then this, then this. So it's difficult for us to read these kinds of books because we live in the West. I also think it's one of the reasons why the West is more prone to conspiracy theories when it comes to Revelation, and it's largely uncommon for Christians in the East. It's the way, the worldview, the perspective that we have that we impose upon this book. So let me give you an example of this, just so that uh, you know I'm telling the truth. I want to give you uh, a passage from Revelation chapter 12. If you got your Bible, go there with me. I want to read to you a story, and then I'll have some questions for you. Chapter 12, verse 1. It says this. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them toward the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give, uh, give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. So what is all that about? What's that story trying to communicate? What if I told you that's the birth narrative of Jesus? You know, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. That story of uh, the, the virgin birth and no crying he makes and laying him down in a manger. Dragons! It's the same story. It is the same truth that we've always known that is communicated in new and fresh ways. So then, again, as Westerners, we begin to ask ourselves, why doesn't God just say what he intends to say? So why doesn't God just say Mary was going to give birth to Jesus, uh, Satan intended to kill him, but God gets in the way and God prevails, Jesus gives birth to the church, and with the church, Jesus is victorious. Why doesn't God just say what he intends? Why does he just say what he means? Because there's something that happens in our hearts and in our minds and in our imagination when we hear apocalyptic literature. He wants to communicate a profound truth that you already know to help you go deeper. 
There's something that it does to us. So let me share a quote with you. This is from Daryl Johnson from another book that I encouraged you to read, uh, Discipleship on the Edge, and it says this. Imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect, through the emotions, and into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. That's what it does. So let me, let me just try and give you the same story two ways to help communicate this. Story number one. An angel comes to Mary and tells her that she is with child and soon she will give birth to the son of the living God and she will call him Jesus. And as the time comes, they travel to Bethlehem, but there's no room available for them. And so she places her child in an animal feeding trough. Shepherds come by and they bow down and they worship Jesus too. And the whole heavenly host gather together and they worship Jesus. Story number two. And there was a great dragon who was lurking across heaven and earth, seeking to devour its prey and to create warfare with heaven and with earth. A great woman cries out in childbirthing pains, and the dragon approaches, seeking to devour her and her offspring. But in the last moment, God intervenes, God prevails, the son is born, and he gives birth to the church. And the church together with the lamb, they wage war with the dragon. They strike down the dragon, and the church prevails through the blood of the lamb. Both of them are the same story, right? But one of them provokes us. One of them causes us to fight. And it fuels and motivates our emotions rightly. So that, I, I, th I think this is the implication, we begin to realize more deeply what is happening in the spiritual realm. Then, like today, there's a dragon that is lurking, and it never stops, and ceaselessly it is motivated to destroy my life, and my marriage, and my kids' lives, seeking to motivate me to punt on my calling as a Christian, and as a parent, and as a husband. Well, suddenly I'm motivated. I want to defend myself. I want to fight. Here I am. Coach, put me in. I want to fight. And that's what this book does. If we let it, if we let it, it motivates us to step in and to fight. And so here is what was true then and is still true today. There is a very real enemy who is seeking to destroy your life who is seeking to rob you of joy and hope and peace and gladness in the Lord. There is a very real enemy who is seeking to lull you to sleep through Netflix and through Roku and through whatever else you have so that you are bored and inattentive and unwilling to step into the battle. And so what we see through this story, it is trying to rightly motivate your emotions to step back into the fight and to obey God's word. And if we know these things to be true, 
I want to very quickly just give you the two things, the two things that I want you to bring with you this week and talk about in your life groups this week. If we know that God wins and that Satan is the enemy, here are the two things we'll do. Number one, you will not demonize other people. You won't demonize other humans. Man, this is something that I think is happening a lot in the Christian church, in the U.S., in Canada, in Europe. We see it a lot on social media, but we see it in churches too. The demonizing of people who don't look like you, who don't act like you, who have differing opinions, all those kinds of things. But here's what I think is so remarkable about the early church. Wouldn't it have been so easy for them to demonize the Romans? They're killing their own family. They're making their life a living hell. And yet, don't we know through the course of human history that Rome becomes the chief recipients of the the message of the gospel from Christians? So much so that eventually 51% of Rome was Christian because they were faithful to suffer well, even in the midst of their persecution against the Romans. And so here's what I think we need to know. Regardless of, of... who your enemy is, what human being you dislike, we have to realize that they're not the enemy. They might be victims to the enemy, and we could have a nuanced conversation about um, maybe Justin Trudeau or Bonnie Henry or Bill Gates or anyone else who you might agree or disagree with saying like they're, they're being used by the enemy to bring about bad things in the world. Okay, we, we can have that conversation, but they're not the enemy. They're not the enemy. They might be victims of the real enemy who is Satan and they are in exactly the same position you used to be before you received the gospel of Jesus Christ they are under spiritual bondage to the enemy and that's why they could be so merciful to their own enemies because they had the eyes to see what was happening in the spiritual realm all around them and so here's the final point I want you to walk home with If you know that God wins and that Satan is the enemy, you will realize that a battle is still waging today and that Christ is the cure. He's the only way. So when we have conversations with people we dislike, people we disagree with, or even unchurched and unbelieving people who we want to bring them into faith, we know that Jesus is the cure. He is the antidote that everyone needs in the same way we needed it before we knew Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So as we march through this book, and we're going to see next week the seven churches, they're not doing so great, hopefully we'll understand a little bit more as to why they're not, why they're struggling, why uh, John, through Jesus, is, is motivated to communicate to them to hold fast to their faith and to get into the fight. And that's my encouragement for you as well. Whether you are a Christian or you're a not-yet-Christian, and you're looking this morning, my encouragement to you is to know this. Jesus has paid the way for you. He is the lamb that was slain so that you and I could be set free. My hope is that we would be motivated to the core to know that in our soul. Let me pray for you. Lord, you are good. We thank you for your son and our rescuer Jesus, the slain lamb. And it is because of his sacrifice that we are victorious. And we know, Lord, that through your word, through the book of Revelation, you are challenging us to stand up and to obey 
even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of the struggles of life, even in the midst of the struggle to cling to the faith that we have, that your Holy Spirit motivates us and leads us to step in with action. We ask, Lord, that you would rightly charge our emotions, that you would rightly motivate us to carry out our calling in the world and that your Holy Spirit would be with us in that process. And so we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.